that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth and that we would learn from you today, not just to have information, but transformation, that we would live more like your Christ and be a light into a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we do we continue this morning. Make sure I'm unmuted. You ready? Good. So we continue this morning uh, talking about what Christians get wrong about Jesus. And of course, the genesis of this is that um, Lonium Ministries recently released their statistics about evangelicals in America. There he is. Thank you, sir. I was right. And the statistics are amazing about what evangelicals claim to believe um, about the Bible on the whole, in particular, the person of Jesus Christ. And so the reality is, as evangelicals, we claim that the Bible is our authority. Um, and but worldwide, we tend to either not know what's in the Bible or ignore what's in the Bible, in particular about the person of Jesus Christ. And that's important because our whole, our whole movement, right, the way is based on the person of Jesus Christ. So if we get that wrong, everything else that stems from that is wrong. Okay, and so we began to talk about Jesus, who he was. We talked about how Jesus um, is divine. We believe Jesus to be deity. We believe that as Christians generally, we believe that as the assemblies of God, that Jesus Christ is the son of God, but he is also God the son, that he is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We looked at the fact that Jesus forgave sins. We looked at the fact that Jesus um, created the world. We looked at the fact that what else did we see? We looked at the fact that Jesus revealed the Father. We looked at the fact that Jesus resurrected and had the power of resurrection. And so we move quickly into some of Jesus' attributes, continuing to solidify his divinity. We begin to look at some of the attributes of Jesus, his divine attributes. Hebrews chapter 1 and 3, it says, The Son is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Colossians 1 and 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These two scriptures begin to show us Jesus Christ has all power in his hands. And this is important, and we've been going back and forth through our lessons with the old, from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is where we come to the realization that our God is what? One. Right. And one of the one of the biggest issues that those who oppose us and when I say us, I'm talking about Trinitarians, those who believe that God is three in one. If they say that we believe in three gods, but we don't. We believe that God is one because the Bible testifies to the fact that God is one. But here's what it says in Psalms 139 verses one to four. It says this. Sorry, wrong scripture. Jeremiah 32 and 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too, anything too hard for me? Job 42 and 2 says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so the Old Testament solidifies that God is all powerful, right? God is the one who is omnipotent. God is the one who holds all power. And of course, in the Old Testament, there is no full revelation of Jesus Christ yet, Right? And so only God is all-powerful, though. But in the New Testament, you see that Jesus Christ is all-powerful like we just read. Okay? Not only all-powerful, but all-omniscient. What does omniscient mean? That he is all-knowing. All he knows everything. Here's what it says in Psalms 139, verse 2. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. How is that even possible? 
It says that the God of heaven knows when I sit, when I rise, and you perceive my thoughts, you know exactly what is in my head, even though you are so far away. The only way that can happen is if someone is what? All. So this is an attribute of God, that he is all-knowing. And this is also an attribute of Jesus Christ. John 16 and 30, you may have the right while I try to get this together. John 16 and 30 says, now we know that you know all things. This is the disciples speaking of who? This is the disciples speaking to and of Jesus the Christ. He says, look, now we know that you know all things. And do not need to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. John 2, 24 and 25. You can write that one down as well. You got it? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so the Old Testament declares that God is all-knowing, that the God of Scripture, the God which is one, is all-knowing. Here it is, the New Testament, in two separate verses, and there are others, but this is just two for the day, that is attributing this ability to know everything. The disciples said, you know all things. It didn't say some things. It didn't say most things. Right? It didn't say nice things, good things, bad things, all things. And so if Jesus knows all things, but only God knows all things, what does that lead us to logically? That Jesus what? This is so simple. <laughs> it is so simple. And, and, and here's, here's the great thing about things being so simple that they're easy to understand. Here's the dangerous thing. When things are really simple, it's easy for people to confuse you about them too. Because it just seems so simple. Like, you got to be, like, it's got to be more of it than that, right? And so when someone comes and say something different, it, you kind of open yourself up to it. So Jesus is omniscient, right? But only God is omniscient. What else is he? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Because omnipresence is an attribute of God. That's not something to be denied. We tell our kids that all the time, we, right? And we preach that. We say, you could pray anywhere. Well, why? Because God is? Right. You could pray anywhere because God is Everywhere. The farmer says, I can make my bed in hell. Like, that's everywhere. Like, everywhere, everywhere. So, obviously, omnipresence is an attribute of God. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So, God himself, speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, says, Playing hide and seek with me is a waste of time. You can't, you can't, you, you can always be spotted. It's like when my two kids play hide and seek, the older one always find a little one. Because there's only like three spots to hide in my house. You know, so it really doesn't take long to figure it out. And then the, the, and the thing is, the younger one is always amazed that the older one finds, how did you find me? And he's like, uh, and that's how God is with us, right? When we try to hide from God, he'd be like, how did you find me? And God is like, uh, you really know where for you to go. But here's the thing. Jesus had a physical body. How could he possibly be omnipresent? We start to run into some problems, or so it seems, doesn't it? Here's, here's how Jesus deals with that. Jesus says this in Matthew 18 and 20. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. 
So there are those who oppose our beliefs that Jesus Christ is deity by saying, well, God is omnipresent and Jesus Christ can't be everywhere because he has a physical body, so he can't be God. But Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, I am with them. He said that. Jesus himself said that. So either he's a liar and we dismiss everything else he says, or he's telling the truth and we have to figure out what he means by that. So, of course, this set of scripture is talking about church discipline, and, and he talks about how you carry that out, and then when you get together, we're two or three. And so that's why whatever you bind, whatever decision you make is binding, and I don't mind, and I, that's a whole other sermon within itself. The point is, the principle here is, where two or three believers are gathered together, I am with them. But the scripture says that after Jesus made atonement and purification for sins, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated So even though we teach little kids, right, and right, technically... It's right that Jesus is in their heart. Literally, Jesus isn't in their heart. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus is. Jesus isn't literally in your heart. If the doctor cut your heart open, Jesus isn't in there. He's at the right hand of the Father. So when we say that Jesus is in the heart, the spirit of Jesus is in the heart. Who is the spirit of Jesus? Jesus says, when I go, though, I'm going to send someone who is like me, another, another like me. Not just another, another like me. And so the spirit of Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, is everywhere. So through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is still everywhere. Because God is one. Don't let people tie you up in knots. Jesus himself said, where two or three gathered, I am with them. And they think he was intentional in saying that to confirm his deity, because he could have easily said, the Holy Spirit is with them. He could have chosen those words, but he said, I am with them. Because he wanted you to realize that the Holy Spirit is his spirit. And it is, his, it is essentially he who is with you when two or three are gathered. He is everywhere. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is still everywhere. How awesome is that? little goosebumps thinking about that. Thinking about simultaneously, he is ever interceding for us, yet he is ever present with us. Think about that. Y'all ain't thinking about that. That's okay. The, another, the next feature, so we have omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. We got one more we're going to talk about. This one is immutability. That's a fancy word with a very simple meaning. Anybody know what immutability is? Sorry, I heard it. Unchanging. Unchanging. Is that not a characteristic of the God of scripture let's check it out malachi 3 and 6 i the lord do not change um pretty straightforward do i need i need the hebrew for that or because okay so you the descendants of jacob are not destroyed okay so malachi god speaking to the prophet of malachi says i the lord then that's capital l-o-r-d no mistake in there that's, that's yahweh that's arguably you know we still don't know exactly how to pronounce it but we'll go with yahweh jehovah whatever that's fine we in particular, he says, I don't change. That's the important issue. I don't change. Now, if scripture says that God, the God of scripture is the one who doesn't change, and we all know people change. We can be testified to that, amen. We all know some people who was one way and not a different way, whether that's good or bad. Some of us in this room, one way and a different way. Some of us one way and here today, and when we get home, we can be a different type of way, amen. Especially if our cheering get on our nerves, pray for me. It is a characteristic of fallen human beings in particular to change. That's not a characteristic of God. 
However, Hebrews chapter 13 and 8, it says this, Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever is a poetic way of saying all the time. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the same all the time. All right, let's try this one. James 1 and 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So every good gift comes from above, from the Father who does not change, which confirms what Malachi says, that I am the Lord, I change it not. Yet Hebrew says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This has to mean then, if God does not change and Jesus does not change, logic dictates that we must surmise that Jesus is So we may say, well, how can Jesus not change? How could Jesus not change? As a matter of fact, he, he wasn't human and then he was human. As human, he would have had to change. That's a human characteristic. I mean, you grow up, right? When you grow, don't you change? Right? Valid questions. Valid questions. Here's the, here's, here's the answer. You need to understand when the Bible talks about God not changing what that means. It means his character does not change. His will does not change. His integrity does not change. The essence of who he is does not change. That's what the scripture means when it says that God doesn't change. And so we have all-powerful, all-knowing, what else? All-what? All-present, ever-present, and never-changing. I don't have a, a clock, so someone help me keep track of the time. The time is 10.30. So let's move on to some divine titles. I, I sincerely apologize about the slideshow, folks. I'm going to really try to get it together next week. But just please bear with me. Try to follow with me. But we good? Are you understanding with me beside the slideshow? Awesome. So, so if you're going to be divine, then you're going to probably have some divine titles, right? And if the scriptures are going to testify to your divinity, then they should probably attribute some of those divine titles to you. That would make sense to me. It would make sense, and I hope it would make sense to you. And I want to prove to you, I want to show to you today where the scriptures give some of those divine titles to Jesus. The first one is God. Like, I mean, I think that should be enough, but we're going to look at a couple. The first one is God. The first divine title that the scripture attributes to Jesus is God. Now, let me read something for you before. Let's go straight to the scripture. John 20. And 28, it says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Uh, Jesus had a perfect opportunity there to correct Thomas if he was wrong. He did not. You know, he would have checked him and say, dude, I, no, you, you, you misunderstand. You mistake me. You mistake me for somebody else. Hebrews 1 and 8. But about the son, he says, he being the father, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So we have a disciple of Jesus Christ testifying to Jesus Christ being God, and then we have the Father himself testifying to Jesus Christ being God by calling him God. Not insinuating, not suggesting, but outright referring to him as God. That's important. Because a disciple shouldn't be giving a title incorrectly, and the Father shouldn't be laying titles on people incorrectly. The fact that the Father lays the title of God on the Son should speak volumes to us. The next title is Lord, L -O, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Now, the, the word Lord itself in scripture is not necessarily a divine title. 
Not necessarily. In other words, other people are referred to as Lord. The Bible says that Sarah called Abraham Lord as a sign of reverence and respect. The word Lord simply means master. Or it could simply mean master. In its context, it could mean more. Let me read something for you. Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's every, every knee, all knee, every single one. In the heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you just have Lord by itself, that could mean a couple of things in a couple of different instances. But when we talk about every knee bowing, bowing as a sign of worship, submission, um, um, recognition that one is greater than, than the other, right? So we're talking about every knee. When we talk about the totality of creation, we're creating a point, we're building a picture here. The totality of creation will bow. And every tongue will confess, right? That Jesus Christ is Lord of what? We're talking about creation being the ones bowing. We talk about creation being the ones confessing. Then the Lord must be related to the creation. Only God can be Lord of creation. So in the context of this, the word Lord here then becomes a divine title. When added to the fact that it is to the glory of God the Father, it seals it. It, it makes it without doubt that the Lord here is used in a divine way. We can't just pull things out and not look at the context of Scripture. The context of the Scripture makes it obvious that we are talking about a divine application of the term Lord. And this is important because Isaiah 45, 23 and 24 says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, remember this is Isaiah now, Old Testament, son of God. And now, here's the interesting thing about this one, right? Because this is one of the exact titles that they like to throw out there to prove that Jesus isn't God. Well, he isn't God because he's the son of God. How can you be God if you're the son of God? That's not possible. Can't happen. Of course it can. When we understand the text, of course it can happen. Let's look at it. When we understand the fact that the son of God, uh, Jesus is God's son, not in the essence that God um, came down, um, got on one knee, you know, say, you know, Mary, we've been doing this a minute. <laughs> and I, I really feel in you. And I think we should make this official. You know, so I got two cows, four sheep in the back to give your daddy, you know. <laughs> Let's do this. That's not, that's, that's not what happened. He didn't, he didn't marry Mary, have relations with her, and then have a son. That's, that's not what happened. Jesus is God's son in the, in the sense that God was manifested in human form. That's, that's what it is. And we need to understand that because humanity and came to earth. And that is the sense in which he is the son. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, right? And so... Matthew 16 and 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that's important. Remember, the, the, the disciple who answered him here, Peter, he was a Jew. Peter knew stuff. As a Jew, he knew stuff. He grew up knowing Jewish stuff, right? And so when Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter said, Peter said, you are the Messiah, right? 
Again, full context. We have to look at the entire scripture. In other words, you are the anointed one, the son of God. When we understand this in the context, right? That when, when talking to the Pharisees, Jesus, referred, Jesus said that I and the father are one. The Bible says their reaction was they picked up rocks to kill him because they understood that he, a mere man, claimed to be God. So Peter understood as well when he said, when Jesus said, who, who do you say I am? When he said, you are the anointed one, the son of God, they knew that the Messiah was already prophesied to be the son of God. And being the son of God, the Messiah was one with God. Peter understood in his response, you are the anointed one, one with God. So son of God wasn't claiming, he wasn't saying you are the Messiah, you are the Messiah, but you ain't quite God. He's saying you are the Messiah, one with God. So in this case, son of God is a claim to divinity. It's a title of divinity. The next one is savior. The next title God has, divine title that Jesus has is savior. Isaiah 43 and 11. Isaiah 43, 11. I, even I, am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And beside me, there is no savior. It's right there in your Bible. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lie. At least not in church. I wouldn't lie in church about that. It's right there. You can check it. It says, I am the Lord, L, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Besides me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 43 and 11. But when we flip over to the New Testament, in Luke 2, 11, it says, For there is one born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But he just said he's the only savior. <laughs> but there's born this day, in this day, a savior. Who's the savior? Christ, the Lord. Divine, man. Divine. And so Jesus Christ is divine. And most of us, we don't have a problem with that, right? Sometimes we have issues knowing where to go in the Bible to, to support our statement. And that's okay. You know, we grow into that. This, this sort of stuff takes time to be able to just go to certain scriptures and, and lead people and show people, not for the sake of argument, but we really want to reveal Christ to people. Those lives get saved. We don't want to win debates. That's, that's not what it's all about. Because you could win a debate and still go to hell. Right? You, you realize that, right? Yeah. All that means is you could debate good. But we want to trans, we want people's lives transformed. So most of us in this room, if not all of us, don't have a problem with the divinity of Christ. We may have a, had a problem explaining it or knowing and where to go in scripture or fully understanding all the aspects of it. Some of us may have believed that, you know, Jesus was little less God than the Father. But now we've cleared that up. We know better. Here's where some of us have a problem, though, which is the next thing we're going to look at, the last thing we're going to look at for the day. But the next thing is Jesus's humanity. Here's where we start to get a little nervous and uncomfortable. Jesus's humanity. Because we believe him to be divine, but we also know that human beings aren't God. So how do we reconcile Jesus' humanity with his divinity? The first thing we need to do is confirm his humanity. We need to make sure that he was actually human, right? And not just appearing to be human. Did you know that there are those that believe today, in the past, and it still exists those today, that 
inside the church, <laughs> notice my air quotes, that Jesus wasn't actually a human, but only appeared to be human. Right? He, he, he looked like flesh and bone. He sounded like us. You know, he, he ate fish to keep up the facade just to keep you all guessing. I <laughs> gotcha. But he wasn't actually human. But we need to worship God in spirit and truth. And we can't make up our own version of Jesus just because it makes us comfortable. If the scripture says that Jesus is a certain thing or a certain way, then that's what it is. And if that means that we have to change, then we need to be the ones to change. We cannot create a version of Jesus and worship it because by biblical definition, that is idolatry. Any version of Jesus that is different from the Bible that you take unto yourselves and you worship that, that's idolatry. You could call it Jesus. You could call it Yeshua. You could get te technical as biblical, as Hebrew and Aramaic as you want. If it isn't the, the Jesus that the Bible reveals, you are in idolatry. And this is why this matters. All right? So what does it mean to be human? It simply means pertaining to characteristics or having the nature of people, or human frailty. In the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, and she gave birth. Speaking of Mary, she gave birth. Here's what I know about human being women. They give birth to human being babies. It's an attribute that's been consistent throughout the entirety of time. All right? Confirmed by numerous scientists and many midwives. Human women give birth to human babies. And it may sound, it may sound like I'm being cynical, but I'm not. Because... I. I'm just trying to drive this point on because the Bible makes things so clear for us sometimes, but because they're so simple, we zone past it, right? We don't pick up on how significant it is because it's so simple. It says, and she gave birth. The fact that a human woman gave birth to a child automatically lets us know that this child is human. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room for them. That's Mary and Jesus. Galatians 4 and 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. How did he send him? Born of a... Why did the scripture put that in there? They could have just said, God sent his son. It says, born of a woman. It lets you know his humanity. It's confirming Jesus is Christ. Humanity, Jesus Christ was fully human, not just human. I'll be getting to this. Understand what I'm saying? He was fully human. When I say fully, I mean in terms of percentages, he was 100%. This is important because fellas be praying child support on 99.8%. Jesus was a 99.8%. Jesus was 100% human. So if you could pay child support on 99.8, 100 got to mean something. Luke 2.52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How do you grow in wisdom and stature if you're in human? Hebrews 5 and 8 to 9, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who obeyed him. He learned obedience. We're going to look at what exactly that means, because that's not what a lot of us think it means. 
But I just wanted to show you that Jesus grew. He had human feelings and he suffered human temptation. That's what, that's what it means when it said he grew in obedience, right? Or he learned obedience. He didn't learn it in the sense that he was sinful and became obedient. That's, that's not what happened. That's not what that means. It means he was tempted and passed. He experienced the temptation and became obedient even under the temptation. That's what it means when it says he learned obedience. Okay? So he suffered temptation just like any other human. That's the point I'm getting at. Jesus had human emotions. Human beings have human emotions. Matthew 26 and 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch with me. In other words, I really, really sigh. Overwhelmed with sorrow. These are human emotions. You see it at funerals. You see it in the hospital. People are overwhelmed with sorrow. This is a human tendency. The machines in the hospital are not sad. Machines don't have human emotions. John 15 and 11, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. This is Jesus saying, I tell you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. The only way you can be filled with my joy is if I have joy. I can't give you what I don't have. Human beings have human emotions, sorrow, joy. Human beings have human needs. Jesus was weary, John 4 and 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noon time. Human beings get tired. Listen to me. I'm human. I get tired. By the time I reach to my car today, the walk from here to my car, I have your boy a little sweaty. You could be a little sweat dripping on the crack of my back. I could be tired. It's hot. That's a human thing. First. John 19, 28, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus said, I thirst. Can I get some of that freshly squeezed lemonade? I don't want none of that, none of that bottled stuff. I want that freshly squeezed. Hunger, Matthew 4 and 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and I always say this is the most understated scripture in, in the Bible. It says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I just think you could have put more, more emphasis on what Jesus really felt in that moment. If I, skip, if, if I skip lunch, I'm hungry. If I don't eat for 40 days, I think it's a little stronger than hunger at that point. But the point is, he was hungry. That's a human feeling. Give me the time, please. Okay. So you all with me so far? He sound human, right? All right. So we talked about Jesus being divine. And in order to help confirm or authenticate his divinity, the Bible should at least have some divine titles, right? And we looked at them. God, Lord, Savior. Uh, I'm missing one. I can't remember it right now. You probably know what it is. Okay? But if he's human, then he should also have some human titles. Shouldn't he? Let's take a look at it. First human title. Jesus. It's a human, it's a human, and it was a common name, right? Like he wasn't the only person named Jesus. Oh, no. <laughs> he had a regular human common name. It's like being named Vado in the Bahamas. Like, it got to be at least 17,000 Vados, have to be. Anyone in here don't know someone named Vado? My point exactly. 
So, and his, his name basically means Yahweh saves. We know that. And from it's, it's, it's the same name pretty much as Joshua, right? With the same meaning. So it's a pretty common name. Another one. Now, here, here's where it gets fun, right? Remember one of the titles for his divinity was what? Son of man? Guess what one for his humanity was? Son of man. Oh, son of God. Sorry. Son of God. And, and so for his humanity, it's son of man. So you see it plainly set out the difference. Son of God, son of man. Now, son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And I believe it, particularly in Luke, it was heavily in Luke. He used son of man a lot. Yeah, but it basically was his favorite title for himself. And he used it because he understood, not only he understood what it meant, he knew that the people, which was mostly Jewish people, understood what it meant. Because in the Old Testament scriptures, son of man was used to confirm someone's humanity. It was used to confirm that the person we're dealing with is a human being. When you look at, um, you can write this one down. I'm not going to go through it. Psalm 8 and 4 and Ezekiel um, 2 and 1. So when, we, when you wanted to show the clear difference between um, divinity and humanity, they would use son of man. So God would, con would come to someone and then refer to them as son of man. Like, know your role, basically. I'm God, you're not. Okay? Another one is son of David. And this is important because it indicates that he is physically descended from David and that he is the Messiah. But most importantly, that he is physically descended from David. You can only be a son of David if you are physically descended from David. And we know that Jesus came through Jesus, um, to David's line, right? I prophesied that he would, son of David. So he has these human titles, son of man. He has a human name, a regular common human name at that, son of David, all right? We're going to have one more attribute, and then we're going to close. I want to talk about the impeccability of Christ. You all know what impeccability is? Close. Awesomeness. Uh, someone said it? Perfect. The perfection of Christ. Hebrews 4 and 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. All right, so Jesus Christ was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. This is important because sometimes, right, we have groups that confirm the humanity of Christ, but they use that as a reason to say, well, Christ sinned because as a human being, he would have had to sin because humans sin. Humans are fallen. Humans aren't perfect. Here's the problem. The Bible says that sin entered the world how? Through the first what? Man. Through Adam. Specifically, the first man is specifically called Adam. Like God left no doubt. Like that's how sin entered the world. And so sin is passed on how? Through Adam. Jesus had no earthly father. So where's the sin nature going to come from? Right. But there's no Adam. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he is fully human. No, I'm talking about G. I jump forward. I fast forward. Sorry. Right. He's the second Adam. He cleaned it up. But I'm saying as far as Jesus' nature, he doesn't have an earthly father. Like the rest of everyone in this room has an earthly father. You know, whether you know him or not, whether you like him or not. <laughs> no problem. I got gotcha. you. 
And so Jesus doesn't have that. And that's important. The Bible tells us where the sin comes in, how it entered the world, and this is how it's passed on. But if Jesus doesn't have that, then he doesn't have that sin nature. Fully human through his mother, but due to the fact that he has no earthly father, he doesn't inherit the sin nature. And so therefore, he is tempted, and he feels the temptation. He feels the weight of that. And this is why he's able to empathize and sympathize. He understands fully what it means for a beautiful woman to walk past and be like, oh, Lord. Cold shower and a prayer. He understands the weight of that. No, that's real. When God said, he empathized, all of that is included. You think Jesus is a warm-blooded, heterosexual man, didn't look at women and be like, well, that's an attractive woman. I'm not saying he loves in his heart. But you all think he just was like, oh, yes. Bless you, my dear. <laughs> Come on, man. He was a man. You don't think he run hard on disciples a couple of times? You don't think knowing Judas was going to betray me, he didn't want to slap him in his sleep a couple of times? It's like, wait, I go, hmm, boy, look here. <laughs> Tempted, but he doesn't bow. He doesn't fold to it. The impeccability of Christ. As God, Jesus never sinned. As a human, tempted from start to finish. No doubt about it. You even see it. The Bible says he went into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted, man. Come on. As God, Jesus never sinned. Second Corinthians 5 and 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, God laid our sin on Christ and then killed Christ. First Peter 2 and 22. He committed no sin. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Tempted. The Bible says Jesus is tempted in his humanity, but in his impeccability, in his divinity, he does not sin. So here's the question that we're going to end with today, and I want to leave this. How could Jesus then be, be, be both God and man at the same time? Because let me tell you this. I'm going to leave you with this so you don't wonder. I need you to know this, and we're going to look at exactly what this means and what this looks like next week. This is a, one of the foundational doctrines of the human faith, that, of the Christian faith that a lot of Christians don't know. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And this is important because some of us believe that he was half God and half man. He, he said, that's, that's, not, that's not what scripture teaches. The scripture teaches what we call, when we doctrinize it, we call it the hypostatic union. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Right? And we're going to look at that, what that means. And let me leave you with a thought. What it does not mean is not Kool-Aid. It's not you take water Kool-Aid, put it together, mix it, and you get a new element. No, 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 no. His natures were never mixed together. They were all both present, but never intertwined, never mixed. They remained separate throughout. But yet, together, fully God, fully man. And he is still, as he is seated at the right hand of God, fully God and fully man. Because see, he had to be man in order to pay the penalty for man, but he had to be God in order to be perfect, to be the perfect sacrifice, to be that penalty. We're going to look at what the hypostatic union looks like next week. Thank you so much.